Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Yes and No. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 27th, 2017. Do not be conformed to this age, Paul tells the believers in Romans 12 for this week. Instead, as he said a few pages earlier, be conformed to the image of God's Son, 8.29. God thus calls us to say no to the many death-dealing ways of our world and a countercultural yes to the life-giving good news of Jesus. Martin Luther King once summarized Romans 12.1 and 2 in one of his sermons. He called it transformed nonconformity. Last week, I reread a book called Daniel Berrigan, Essential Writings. It was published back in 2009. Since I read and review a book every week for Journey with Jesus, I virtually never reread books. But Berrigan is an exception, an inspiration, a clarifier. After I finished the book, I joked to a friend that I needed an emoticon of an exploding head. Across his long life as a Jesuit priest, poet, and peace activist, Berrigan protested the many manifestations of our culture of death and violence. He lamented the assimilation of the church to the world. When Nora Gallagher asked Berrigan how many times he had been jailed for the gospel, he lamented, not enough. All his nonconformity on the edges of society, though, had a very specific orientation. In the Apostle Paul's language, conformity to the image of God's Son. When asked by judges and prosecutors to explain the rationale for his illegal actions, Berrigan was adamant. His no to our culture of death made no sense at all, except when understood as a yes to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When the Jesuit priest John Deere asked him for some advice, Berrigan responded, Make your story fit into the story of Jesus. Ask yourself, does your life make sense in light of the life of Jesus? All we have to do is close our eyes to the culture and open them to our friends. We have enough to go on. We can't afford the luxury of despair. And so said Berrigan, stand somewhere. Do the word. Put your body where your words are. Berrigan commends other well-known transformed nonconformists, like Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, Nelson Mandela, and Martin Luther King. There's a great cloud of witnesses out there who have shown us the way. But it's precisely at this point that Berrigan loses a little traction for me. After all, my little life will never win a Nobel Prize or land me on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, as it did with Berrigan. So, thank God for the story this week about the midwives Shipra and Pua two ordinary women who performed extraordinary acts of faith. When a new pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph, 
Israel's bondage in Egypt took a violent turn. Forced labor, ruthless oppression, and the edict of infanticide. We read, Every boy that is born you must throw into the river, but let every girl live. Shipra and Pua defied the genocidal command. Why? Because we read, they feared God rather than Pharaoh. When asked about their disobedience, they lied about what they were doing. And then, just like that, these two ordinary women disappear from the biblical narrative, never to be mentioned again. It's been suggested that their no to Pharaoh and their yes to God might be the first known incident of civil disobedience in history. The Hebrew midwives remind me of another ordinary woman whose no to death and yes to life reverberated down through history. On December 1, 1955, after working all day as a seamstress at a department store, Rosa Parks boarded a bus to go home. She paid her fare and sat down in the first row of seats that were reserved for blacks. When the front of the bus reserved for white people filled up, the driver moved the colored sign behind Parks and then told her and three other blacks to move to the back to accommodate the white passengers. Her three seatmates moved. Rosa Parks did not. Later, she recalled, when that white driver stepped back toward us, when he waved his hand and ordered us up and out of our seats, I felt the determination cover my body like a quilt on a winter night. When he saw me still sitting, he asked if I was going to stand up, and I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, if you don't stand up, I'm going to have to call the police and have you arrested. And I said, you may do that. The bus driver did call the police, who arrested Parks for violating Montgomery's segregation laws. She was also fired from her job. But her quiet act of civil disobedience jump-started the Montgomery bus boycott three days later on December 4th. The nonviolent protest lasted 381 days until the Supreme Court ruled in Browder v. Gale that bus segregation was illegal. Like Daniel Berrigan and Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks' political activism and civil disobedience were rooted in the gospel. In her biography, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, Jean Theo Harris describes Parks as a staunch and active Christian. She always carried her Bible with her and was a lifelong member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. That's sort of in my family background too, said Parks, the Lord's power within me to do what I have done. She led a life of rich and active worship in both Montgomery and Detroit, where she was a deaconess. Her Christian faith nourished her beliefs in human dignity, equality, the long struggle against racism, and the Christian responsibility to act. She responded to death threats with a prolonged period of prayer in church, after which, writes Theo Harris, an intense calm swept over her. 
From my upbringing in the Bible, Parks wrote in her own autobiography, I learned people should stand up for rights, just as the children of Israel stood up to the Pharaoh. After I finished rereading Berrigan's Essential Writings, I circled back to another of his books, a collection of poetry called And the Risen Bread, Selected Poems 1957 to 1997. And in particular, this poem of his called Georgetown Poems, number five. The suburbs are sad as death. The university slumps on its arse. Money dreaming of money. Washington, D.C., a whitewashed sepulchre, awaits the diggers of history. Side by side, tombs, slums, imperial empathy. Amid all this, the transfixed tourists, the international pimps, the wheelers and dealers, rolling along like chariot wheels of fate, the faces like faces on dollars. Amid all this did one original mind cry out a gospel verse, panic in the streets, tumbling whirlwinds, the unbearable halo of the resurrected Christ. So, in conclusion, confirm the gospel. Don't conform to the world. Say no to all the demons of death. Say yes to the life of God in Christ. For books this week, I review a title called The Stranger in the Woods, the extraordinary story of the last true hermit. The author is Michael Finkel, New York, Knopf, 2017. This book is 203 pages. It took a long time, but on April the 4th, 2013, the long arm of the law finally found and apprehended Christopher Thomas Knight, better known in the state of Maine as the North Pond Hermit. Thirty years ago, back in 1986, when he was 20 years old, Knight disappeared into the dark woods of rural Maine, where for 27 years he lived utterly alone in complete isolation. He didn't have a conversation with anyone during those three decades. He never went to the doctor. He never built a campfire so as not to attract attention. And he never moved but instead occupied the same site all that time. Christopher Knight wasn't just a hermit. He was also a prolific thief, which is how he survived. His campsite was only about a mile from a number of vacant summer cabins. By his own estimate, he burglarized those cabins in a campsite about 40 times a year for food clothing, reading material, propane gas tanks, and various sorts of gear. Across 27 years, that adds up to about a thousand raids. He only took what he thought he needed to survive, and never valuables or money. Why did he forsake society? 
for radical seclusion? There's no clear explanation. He wasn't judging society, seeking nirvana, or trying to prove some point. I can't explain my actions, he tells Finkel. I had no plans when I left. I wasn't thinking of anything. I just did it. Nor does he offer any deep insights about anything he learned. There are radically divergent opinions about Christopher Knight. Was he crazy or insane? Perhaps he had some form of autism? About 80% of the cabin owners that Finkel interviewed think he's a liar and that he could not have possibly survived the main winters, as he claims. Most hermits that Finkel queried thought that his stealing disqualified him as a person worthy of respect. Others admire his independent streak, for which Maine is famous. Still others are deeply angry about how their cabins were burglarized, how their little kids were terrified and their psyches traumatized for almost 30 years. Knight never justified his theft, but instead always felt guilty about it, especially since, like go most good Mainers, he grew up with the ideal of self-sufficiency. After about seven months in jail, where Finkel interviewed him nine times for this book, the prosecutor agreed that it would be cruel to punish the eccentric and instead sentence him to a probationary program. After completing the agreed-upon program, he was free to assume something like a normal life in regular society. And so he returned to the home he fled back in 1986, only 30 miles from his campsite, in order to live with his aging mother. The author is Michael Finkel. The title of the book, The Stranger in the Woods. For movies this week, I review a documentary called Humpback Whales from the year 2015. This 40-minute IMAX documentary, complete with the celebrity narration of Ian McGregor, would be marvelous for a family film night. Humpback whales inhabit all the oceans of the world, but in this movie, scientists take us to Tonga, Alaska, and Hawaii to showcase these spectacular marine mammals. The photography is stunning, and their story is amazing. Their immense size, 40 tons, feeding behaviors, breaching, diving to a thousand feet, migrating 10,000 miles every year, and their eerie and complex vocalizations. It's hard to imagine that these majestic creatures were almost hunted to extinction for their oil just 50 years ago. Today, humpbacks are thriving, although they have recovered only about 40% of their peak population. In three nations still allow commercial whaling. Norway, Iceland, and Japan. There were only 10 reviews of this movie on Rotten Tomatoes, but the film nonetheless got a 100% rating. I watched Humpback Whales on Netflix streaming.
And in keeping with my essay on saying yes and saying no, Daniel Berrigan, we've posted a poem by the farmer poet Wendell Berry. It's called simply Questionnaire. It's taken from his 2010 book, Leavings. Here's the questionnaire. Number one, how much poison are you willing to eat for the success of the free market and global trade? Please name your preferred poisons. Two, for the sake of goodness, how much evil are you willing to do? Fill in the following blanks with the names of your favorite evils and acts of hatred. Number three, what sacrifices are you prepared to make for culture and civilization? Please list the monuments, shrines, and works of art you would most willingly destroy. In the name of patriotism and the flag, how much of our beloved land are you willing to desecrate? List in the following spaces the monuments, rivers, towns, farms you could most readily do without. And number five, state briefly the ideas, ideals, or hopes, the energy sources, the kinds of security for which you would kill a child. Name, please, the children whom you would be willing to kill. That's Daniel Berrigan, his questionnaire. Thank you for joining us with journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 27th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.